jump into week two of a sermon series, and, and that means we began it last week, obviously. That's easy math, right? And so last week, uh, we, we talked about, in, in an overview kind of way, uh, what it looks like to live a life uh, in which we char- uh, cultivate the character of Jesus. The, the title of this series is The Nine Virtues, and the purpose uh, of this series is to look at Galatians 5, where Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit as love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. What, what does it mean to, to live a life in which we cultivate the character of Jesus as Paul lays it out in Galatians 5? To be sure, we, we talk about this all the time. Salvation doesn't come through character cultivation, but rather by grace alone, through faith alone, in the person and work of Jesus alone. And yet we're a root of Faith exists, the fruit of cultivated character will too exist. I said it this way last week, from every gospel root comes gospel fruit. But but what does that mean? What what does it mean to live a life uh, walking by the Spirit? What does it mean to live a life of love, to live a life of joy, to live a life of peace, of patience, and so forth and so on? Why does it matter that we commit ourselves to that kind of an endeavor? And how do we practically do it? What does it look like to keep in step With the Spirit of God. And so last week, my goal was to give a bit of a a broad brushstroke overview to the life lived in step with the Spirit of God, what that looks like. And so we looked at Galatians chapter 5, where Paul lays out this argument for the fruit of the Spirit in contrast to the works of the flesh. And so part of last week was a crash course in the doctrine of the Holy Spirit. We looked at the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And so if you weren't here, I would encourage you to go back and listen to last week's sermon via podcast and and catch yourself up on the doctrine of the person and work of the Holy Spirit. Just by going and listening online, you can knock out a chapter of a systematic theology book without ever having cracked one open. We, We talked about the fact that if you're a Christian, the Holy Spirit has set up permanent residency Within you, the Spirit of God indwells you, the third person of the Godhead, which is good news because you're in the middle of a war, whether you realize it or not. It's a war between the Spirit and the flesh. And so we talked not just about the person and work of the Holy Spirit last week, we talked about the flesh, the sinful nature, the mind out of step with the Spirit of God, the emotions out of step with the Spirit of God, the will out of step with the Spirit of God. We talked about the fact that the flesh manifests itself not just in immorality, but in morality at times. That sometimes the flesh says, I don't have to play by God's rules. I call the shots. That's self-exaltation through immorality. But there are other times that the flesh says, look at me. Aren't I virtuous? Which is self-exaltation through morality. And so the flesh can rear its ugly head in, in either of those ways. There's a war between the spirit and the flesh. And so knowing that, How do we walk by the Spirit rather than by the flesh? And so I argued last week that for those who love and follow Jesus and desire to cultivate the character of Jesus, it comes, one, by trusting that the Holy Spirit will see uh, the work to completion. So there's a dependence on the third person of the Godhead. When you wake up daily, it's acknowledging that I can't do this in my own strength. I I can't do this alone. That if uh, the cultivation of the character of Christ is going to happen in my life, it's going to happen because the Holy Spirit is empowering the work. But it's not a passive dependence. We talked about the fact that cultivating the character of Jesus comes as we abide in Jesus. Remember I gave this example last week that uh, communicable diseases are those things which can be caught 
And the closer you, you come in proximity to a, a person who has a communicable disease, the more likely you are to catch the disease. Well, the attributes of God are not a disease. They're, they're quite glorious, right? But they're caught in the same way. That The closer we, we draw to God, the closer we, we come to God in, in abiding in Jesus intimately, the, the more we fix our gaze upon him and his word, the more we meditate on the gospel, it has a way of of changing us. We, we catch the character of Christ the closer we get to him. It's what Jesus meant in John 15, 5 when he said, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And so there's an abiding in Jesus. There's also an active killing of the old self. And so I mentioned this last week that our Our sinful nature received its death blow on the cross so that we can be sure that it is going to die in the end, that the spirit is going to emerge victorious in the end. And so now we participate in moving toward that final breath of the old self by daily driving nails into it. We we continue to spear it in the side until it breathes its last breath. We, We don't help it down from the cross, but rather we treat it like Jesus was treated on his cross. And so there's a, a putting to death of, of the flesh, of the old self. But it's not just about a, a crucifying. It's also about a breathing life into the new self. And so it's this idea of keeping in step with the Spirit of God through the ordinary means of God's grace. In the same way that you wake up, and, and most of us, we eat three meals a day, and we know we need to in order to get to the next day, right? We do the same thing as a part of the Christian life. Time in the Scriptures. Time sitting under the preached Word of God. The sacraments of baptism and communion, time in prayer, time spent with other Christians, time doing the hard work of excavating idols at a heart level, preaching the gospel to yourself. And you go, man, I do those things and some days it just feels mundane. Well, I would argue that most of the meals that I eat physically are fairly mundane, right? When you put another sandwich in your gullet, At noon tomorrow, it's going to feel pretty mundane, right? Every meal that you eat is not Antico pizza. Every meal that you eat is not a burger from Holman and Finch. Like you, that's not every meal, and yet every meal gets you to the next one. And and so, uh, part of the trusting of the Holy Spirit is that God knows what He's doing, even in those moments that feel quite mundane. That God is sustaining us, and He's he, He sees the bigger picture, the tapestry of our lives in ways that we can't see. And so we just we continue to commit, trusting that the Word of God will not return void. One day at a time, in the midst of Christian community that that God has graciously given us, we depend on the Spirit, we abide in Jesus, we we put the old self to death, and we breathe life into the new self by the ordinary means of God's grace. I mentioned last week that we're not going to spend every week of this series in Galatians 5. Rather, I'll take a passage in Scripture on love this week. The fruit of the Spirit is love, and next week, joy, and so forth and so on. And so this week, we're going to look at 1 John. There's no better book of the Bible to go to regarding love than 1 John. Um, In terms of the greatest chapter, probably 1 Corinthians 13. But in terms of book of the Bible at large, um, there are roughly 100 verses that make up 1 John. A third of those, John talks about love. In fact, 50 times in this short book of the Bible, John mentions love. And so if you have a Bible, you can open up to 1 John chapter 4. We'll be in verses 7 through 11 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in front of you. You can grab that and open up to this morning's passage. It's near the, the, the back half, the back bookend of the Bible, right before uh, Revelation. 
If you don't own a Bible, take that Bible with you as the church's gift to you. Um, explore the truth claims of Christianity on your own time. We'd be excited about that. Let me pray for us. God, I think all of us could stand to be doused a little more with an understanding of your love for us. God, I pray that we would feel a great fire hydrant of love poured out upon us this morning, uh, that we would uh, more firmly be rooted in our faith, knowing that you love us, that you've shown for your love for us in sending your son to die for us. God, it's the gospel that truly empowers uh, any hope of, of this virtue of love uh, within us to emanate from us. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would do what only you can do, uh, which is to awaken our hearts to the, uh, the incomprehensible love of God. What, what, a crazy, what a crazy exercise that Paul calls us to in Ephesians, to, to comprehend the incomprehensible love of God. Um, and yet it's in doing that that our hearts are awakened. So would you awaken our hearts this morning? Holy Spirit, we love you. We lift these things up in the name of Jesus. Amen. All right, welcome to the most daunting sermon series on the face of the planet. I, I really thought that I was going to get a little bit of a breather this summer before we launched into the fall, and that's just not true. Because uh, each week, the task is to take a word and try to unpack that word in a way that is biblically faithful and culturally sensible and leaves you without any questions. So let me, let me start with a disclaimer and say that I'm going to fail you big time. Um, in fact, if you come back uh, to a more broad, comprehensive look at this series at large, even Paul's list that comprises the fruit of the Spirit is not comprehensive of the Christian life, right? Um, Jerry Bridges uh, put together a good book on the fruit of the Spirit, one of the few that are out there that's actually decent uh, as it pertains to unpacking the fruit of the Spirit. And before he ever even gets to the first on the list in Galatians 5, love, he has a chapter on humility. Because humility is not a part of the list in Galatians 5, right? But we know that humility is a part of the Christian life. In fact, without humility, there's no hope of walking in dependence on the Holy Spirit in the first place. And so you can read the New Testament and you see a number of lists that are laid out, some of those by the Apostle Paul himself, though he doesn't include some of those virtues in the list in Galatians 5. And so even this series is not going to be a, a comprehensive look at the Christian life as a whole. But then each week as we look at a particular virtue that makes up that list in Galatians 5, you're going to walk away with questions. You're going to walk away feeling like we didn't quite cover it. And that's because it's impossible to. In a 40-minute window, there's no way to unpack love in a way that we walk away and go, I think I have all my questions answered. So my disclaimer, I'm going to fail you. My hope this morning is simply to take us through what I think is one of the clearest passages on the virtue of love and trust the Spirit to work in all of our hearts. So with that being said, let me ask a question this morning to start us off. When you think of love, what comes to mind? Sure, there are a litany of things that, that hit your mind when you think of that word. Some things that come to my mind. Some believe that love is a feeling, something that you can fall in and out of. Others believe that love is an action, the giving of oneself sacrificially for the good of the other. Some believe that you can't love others until you learn to love yourself. 
And others believe that self-love can only lead to using others rather than loving them. Some believe that in order for love to win, doctrine must die, while others believe that truth and love are inextricably connected. Some believe that it's not love if it's not an outpouring of the freedom of the will, while others believe at times that love requires an overcoming of the bondage of the will. You see how I'm going to fail you this morning? Those are just a few of the things that come to my brain. That doesn't even include things like, what does it mean to love your enemies? What does it mean to love neighbor? What does it mean to to truly love God with heart, soul, mind, and strength? There are a number of things that that come to mind when you think of that word. We're barely going to scratch the surface regarding the virtue of love, and yet, strangely, we're going to drown in it in the most glorious way this morning. So let's get to work. Look at verse 7. It's up on the screen. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. Okay, right off the bat, John makes two statements that are foundational in our understanding of love. And both of these statements go hand in hand. Namely, verse 7, love is from God, and verse 8, God is love. Now, when John says love is from God, he's not talking from God uh, as if it were a package or a gift, as if God is a UPS delivery man and and he's delivering love to all the saints. That's not what John means here. What, What he means is that love is from God in the way that light emanates from the sun. Right? Love is from God. Love emanates from God. It shines forth from God, which makes sense because verse 8, God is love. Right? In the same way that the sun emanates light because the sun is light, love emanates from God because God is love. Does that make sense? That, that's foundational. That's elementary language in, in John's writing here. And so John uses that foundation to make the case that if you're a Christian, you love. You love because the God who is love and who emanates love indwells you. Therefore, you emanate love. Going back to last week, if you're a Christian, the third person of the love emanating trinity has set up permanent residency within you. Therefore, you emanate love. Make sense? He goes so far as to say in verse 8 that anyone... Uh, anyone who does not love does not know God. In verse 7, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Now, you should be scratching your head a little bit at this point. There are a couple questions that should come to mind that beg to be answered. Number one, if I struggle to love others, does it mean that I don't know God? Because John says anyone who does not love does not know God. And then secondly, what do we do with the fact that there are multitudes of non-Christians who love others? John says, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Let's take the first of those two questions. If I struggle to love others, does it mean that I don't know God? Because John says, anyone who does not love does not know God. Going back to last week, this is why I think it's helpful to lay out an overview of the series before diving right into it. I said this last week and I'll say it again. If you come in this morning going, some days I feel quite victorious in this thing called the Christian life, and other days I feel quite defeated, there's something far worse than a battle between the flesh and the spirit. Namely, no war at all. The absence of war altogether. If there's a war taking place within, be encouraged. 
That's likely a sign that the Spirit of God does, in fact, indwell you. That tension within you, that's a good thing. Another thought going back to last week is this. If there's a regular practice, right? Paul said, we we looked at last week, the works of the flesh. And and Paul says, those who do these things, right? When he uses that word do, he's talking a regular practice, a habit, a routine. If, If there's a habitual absence of love in your life, if that's routine for you, if, if that's a part of your character makeup in, in a routine, regular, habitual kind of a way, well, that might be a sign that the Spirit doesn't indwell you. But if there's a war there, if there's a tension there, an internal conflict between the flesh and the Spirit, that's a sign that you belong to Jesus. And now the second question. What do we do with the fact that there are multitudes of non-Christians who love others? John says, whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. And so if you're not a Christian, you, you might be here this morning declaring, I have a capacity for love. And so according to verse 7, me and God, we're good. There are a couple of ways to deal with, with this question. Um, one would be the way that the Westminster Confession of Faith deals with it put this up on the screen for you. Chapter 16, article 7 of the Westminster Confession of Faith says this, works done by unregenerate men, that is uh, those who are not born again, those who are not part of the family of God uh, who have trusted in the person and work of Jesus for salvation. Works done by unregenerate men, although for the matter of them they may be things which God commands and of good use both to themselves and others. Yet, Yet, because they proceed not from a heart purified by faith, nor are done in a right manner according to the word, nor to a right end, namely the glory of God, they are therefore sinful and cannot please God or make a man meet to receive grace from God for them. And yet, the neglect of them is more sinful and displeasing unto God than to actually do them. So, one way to come at this question is to say this, that... Love that cares nothing of the glory of God is not the kind of love that John has in mind. Love that is not rooted in faith in the person and work of Jesus is not the kind of love that John has in mind. Now, you might push back against that one, so let me come at this another way. Uh, One of my seminary professors, a man by the name of John Frame, one of the most brilliant men that I've ever sat under. Uh, In fact, he's got a, a book that uh, is pretty intimidating to even look at. Um, over a thousand pages entitled The Doctrine of the Christian Life. It's a, it's a go-to for me in shepherding people, um, in dealing with questions of biblical ethics, what it means to live the Christian life. And so I go back to it often. But according to, to Dr. Frame, one, one of the things that he argues is that um, the, the battle over whether love is an affection or an action both, both sides are, are missing the point. There's still a reductionistic approach to understanding love if, if you come at it from either of those vantage points or even both. Because he argues that love is not only an affection and an action, but it's also an allegiance. All right, let me explain that. I think most of us pretty well grasp the idea of love as affection and love as action Um, Just go read uh, Song of Songs and you'll see uh, affection, uh, you know, of one welling up for the other. We understand that. We understand that to love someone is to feel something for them. And we also understand that to love someone is to serve them. 
um, that, that we'll get there soon enough in verses 9 and 10. But God loved us in sending his son. That's an act. That's an action. Most all of us have felt an affection for another person. And most all of us have stepped out in action for the good of another whom we love. And the reality is that the non-Christian can feel affection for another. And the non-Christian can, can serve another, can step out in action for the good of another. Which is why I think the inclusion of allegiance really helps to clarify the issue. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. Many of you have heard these verses. Uh, the Jewish Shema, as it's known. Uh, says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart and with all of your soul and with all of your might. Right? That, that's the language of love as allegiance to God. That part of what it means to love God, going back to the Ten Commandments, God says, is to have no other gods before me. It's an allegiance. It's a covenant faithfulness, you could say. We, we understand this because... Um, as a married man, it's not quite enough for me to say, honey, I have affection for you, and I'm happy to pick up some of the chores. But just so you know, I'm going to cheat on you on Wednesday night. That doesn't fly in a marriage. We understand that it's not just about feeling certain affections and serving the other through selfless action. It's also about remaining faithful to the covenant. That's a part of what it means to love. And so what I think John has in mind in verse 7 is this. One way we could say it is whoever loves with a love rooted in faith, purposed for God's glory, and in allegiance to God as king, whoever loves with that kind of love has been born of God and knows God. Only a Christian can love with that kind of love. A a knee bent to, to God Uh, in in exaltation of God as the true king rather than seeking to build one's own kingdom. Now, here's the crazy thing about this passage. Now that we're back on the beaten path, you might say. Now that we've addressed a couple of critical questions that verses seven and eight present. Going back to the foundation of verses seven and, and eight. Love emanates from God like light emanates from the sun because God is love. So if you're a Christian, the third person of the love emanating trinity indwells you and therefore love emanates from you. You emanate love. Here's the crazy thing. You might be inclined to think that at this point in this morning's passage that John would now define love for us. That that he would give us some sort of Webster's dictionary definition of, of what love is. When you say God is love, what do you mean, John? We wanna understand that. That's not what John does. In fact, that's not what any of the systematic theologians that that I read this week do. They don't define love in in a way that is is kind of floaty and theoretical up in the clouds. Rather, the love of God is so incomprehensible that the best way that John can think of to make sense of it is to say, let me show you an example. And in fact, the best one in human history. Look at verses 9 and 10. He says, In this, the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. Verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That rather than say God is love, and here's how I define love, John says God is love, and here's what the love of God looks like on display. And in fact, John lays out the most glorious display of love in all of human history. 
God sending his son into the world to die for sinners like you and me. A God who can't fathom a storyline in which he doesn't die in the place of those who deserve to do the dying. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus because Christ Jesus was condemned in our place. There is now therefore no guilt for those who are in Christ Jesus because Christ Jesus was pronounced guilty in our place. There is now therefore no shame for those who are in Christ Jesus because Christ Jesus was shamed in our place. There is now therefore no wrath for those who are in Christ Jesus because Christ Jesus absorbed the wrath of God in our place. This, John says, is God's love made manifest in the world as we know it. Some will say that love is the setting aside of doctrine, that, that doctrine divides, that it, it, it just ruins the conversation, so to speak. It's the uh, antagonist of love, that we shouldn't be so dogmatic about our beliefs. John says, I don't think so. Love on display is the doctrine of the incarnation, verse 9. God sending his son into the world. Love on display is the doctrine of propitiation. John doesn't shy away from that big word. Verse 10, Jesus absorbing the wrath of God on our behalf. That's what that word means. That you can't sacrifice truth on the altar of love. Not the kind of love that John is describing. Notice also that God's love doesn't make God's holiness expendable. Notice that the love of God was not made manifest among us by God sweeping sin under the rug. Rather, the love of God made manifest among us was his pouring out his wrath on Jesus in our place. That his love is a holy love, that you can't separate the attributes of God from one another. Finally, in verses 9 and 10, notice that God's love for us precedes our love for him. Verse 10, in this is love, not that we have loved God but that he loved us. Paul says it this way in Romans 5, verse 8. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The origin of love is is not our response to God. Love starts with God. This is crazy to think about, and this is what I think empowers and compels living out the virtuous life of love according to the Spirit It's sitting with this question long enough to let it blow your mind. And the question is this. Why does God love you? Why does God love you? The answer to that question, according to John and the Apostle Paul, God loves you because he loves you. Let me say that again. God loves you because he loves you. That's so hard for us to wrap our minds around, is it not? Like we, we want to see something intrinsically lovable within us that goes, man, God looked at me and he picked me for his team. But that's the complete antithesis to what Scripture teaches. God's not uh, like some uh, uh, captain of a middle school PE class who, who picked you because he thought you could kick better than all the other kids. That, that's not what the gospel declares. The gospel declares that while you were playing in a mud hole of sin, God reached down and grabbed you and breathed life into your dead, lifeless soul. He loves you because he loves you. Oh, what grace. It's unbelievable. This is what I think the Apostle Paul was wrapped up in as he recorded Ephesians 3, verses 16 through 19. Every once in a while you see Paul, he's a great theologian, right? He writes things that make your head hurt. And, but then every once in a while he stops and it's like, did you just worship? 
What, what just happened there? Did you just stop and just go into a moment of like praise and worship in the middle of your letter? And I think that's what Ephesians 3, 16 through 19 is. It, it's, it's Paul stopping and soaking in the love of God and oh so wanting that for the people of God that they become rooted more and more in this incomprehensible love that he has experienced and wants all to experience. He says this, May God grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love. Okay, so love's there. We're rooted and we're grounded in it as Christians. That you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let me attempt to unpack that in the most surface level way I possibly can. In terms of breadth, God's love is wide enough to embrace the world. His love is as broad as Jew and Gentile, young and old, educated and uneducated, rich and poor, married and single, as broad as every tribe, tongue, and nation, breaking down walls of hostility and alienation and replacing them with reconciliation and hope. In terms of length, God's love spans the scope of eternity. As Charles Spurgeon once famously said, God's love is so long that your old age cannot wear it out. So long that your continual tribulation cannot exhaust it. So long that your successive temptation shall not drain it dry. Like eternity itself, it knows no bounds. Isn't that good news? In terms of depth, God's love reaches deeper than our deepest sin. Harold Akinga, old Boston pastor, says it this way. He says, it was the love of God which led Christ to descend by the incarnation to the cross and humiliate himself by being identified with the sins of man as well as with man himself. That love is deeper than the deepest sin. He went lower than the vilest, foulest, wickedest wretch that walks this earth in order that he might lift the fallen by his eternal love. You believe that you're beyond the reach of God's grace this morning? Because you're not. Not according to the word of God. In terms of height, God's love, Ephesians 2, 6, is high enough to raise us up with Christ and seat us with him in the heavenly places. I can't even unpack what that means in its fullness. John Stott sums up Ephesians 3 this way. He says this, The love of Christ is broad enough to encompass all mankind, long enough to last for eternity, deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner, and high enough to exalt him to heaven. The glorious hymn entitled The Love of God says this, and I believe we'll sing it in just a few moments, so great opportunity to to teach it, and James uh, did so uh, even weeks ago, unpacking what these words mean. The hymn says this, Could we with ink the oceans fill, and were the skies of parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, to write the love of God above would drain the oceans dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole, though stretched from sky to sky. In other words, if we just 
emptied the oceans of water and filled them with ink. And we used every single stalk on planet Earth as a pen. And we all were gifted with, with the ability to write. That was our gift. That was our vocation. And, and the entire sky was the parchment on which we could write about the love of God. We would drain the oceans dry and the sky would run out of space before we said all there is to say about God's love. Paul wants us to wrap our minds and hearts in Ephesians 3 around the comprehensive uh, nature of the love of God, which our minds and hearts are incapable of doing. It's really kind of funny. It's really kind of unfair. And, And yet it's this absolutely impossible exercise, Paul says, that will fill us with the fullness of God and cause us to spontaneously burst forth in doxology, in praise. Let me say it this way. If you're not moved in your affections for Christ, it's likely because you've not taken the time to stop and try to comprehend the incomprehensible love of God. We just kind of bypass it, right? Jesus loves me. He, he died to save sinners. I'm one of those. Good to go. On Easter morning in France, you may have heard this before, there's a phrase that litters the streets. It's it's on the side of buildings, posted on lampposts, houses, buses, graffitied on sidewalks. It's used in greetings amongst people. Uh, it's sung in the church. It's the phrase, l'amour de Dieu et folie, and it means the love of God is folly. It's scandalous. When you get to the place that you think of the love of God as absolutely scandalous, as absolute madness, then you're beginning to comprehend the incomprehensible love of God, the love that he has for you. There's no deeper theology than Jesus loves me, to be clear. Let me put it one more way in hopes that your heart might be awakened. I mentioned this before. God didn't create human beings in the beginning out of a sense of loneliness. It wasn't that he was sitting back going, I really need someone to give me a valentine, and there's no one to do that, so I'm just stuck. And so he made... Uh, you and I. That's not, that's not what God was up to. There was a perfect intra-Trinitarian love taking place between Father, Son, and Spirit before the foundations of the world. John 17, 24 makes that very clear. This is Jesus' priestly prayer, one of the most complex chapters in all the Bible. Jesus says this as he's praying, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because, notice this, you loved me before the foundation of the world. All right? So picture it if you can. And I know you can't, but try. This eternal dance saturated with perfect love between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit taking place before anything that is created was created. All right? That's enough to blow your mind in and of itself. But now check this out. Two verses later, Jesus says this. This is crazy. He says, I made known to them your name, Father, and I will continue to make it known, listen to this, that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Did you catch that? Jesus is saying when you come to know God in a personal, in a real way, you're drawn up into that dance that's been taking place since before the foundations of the world. 
You're drawn up into the fellowship and love of the Trinity. You're drawn up into the love that the Father has for the Son. That's crazy. That's why there are moments when when you find yourself going, I'm compelled by the cross of Christ and I deeply love Jesus. That's why you find yourself in moments where you go, Jesus is gloriously beautiful and compelling to me. That's why you find yourself welling up with an overwhelming love for Jesus at times. If you don't ever experience that, you're probably not a Christian. Jesus loves me, this I know. If that doesn't move you, and nothing will. So that verse 11, John says this, Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought to love one another. If God so loved us to come and die in the place of us sinners, so that we might be drawn up into the eternal dance of the Trinity forever. If God so loves us, we also ought to love one another. And, and, and that's not so much an ethical ought. It, it's, it's we ought to the way a cow ought to move. The way a duck ought to quack. The way a lion ought to roar. If you're a Christian, it, it's part of who you are. Think about it for a second. It's not just the external visual of Jesus dying for us that compels us to love. Is that part of it? Yes and amen. Fixing your eyes on the cross of Christ and seeing the love of God manifest in that way is critical. It's a critical part of it. It's the external piece, seeing something outside of you. But it's also the internal dwelling of the love emanating spirit of God that compels us to love. That's in you. It's both inside of us and outside of us. John says the love of God has been lavished upon you in Christ and the love emanating spirit of God indwells you. Therefore, love. Let the love of the spirit who indwells you shine forth like a beam of light shines forth from the sun. It's what a sunbeam does. It shines. Guess what the Christian does? He loves. She loves. When you walk by the spirit, when you keep in step with the spirit, Love emanates forth. This fruit of the Spirit is love. The old self doesn't want to love, does it? At least not when it looks at verses 9 and 10, because according to those verses, to love is to condescend, as Jesus condescended and entered the depraved slums of human history. To love is to suffer for the sake of the other, as Jesus suffered so that we might have life. To love is to willingly be stripped of glory, as Jesus was stripped of glory so that we might have hope. To love is to die, right? Ephesians, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that love is a call to die. Love is costly, but it shines with the radiance of God because God is love, and we shine with the radiance of God when we walk by the Spirit in love. In a moment, we're gonna take communion We do so by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup here, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. If you're a Christian, that meal is for you. Um, In a moment, you'll be directed to come and receive of the elements. But let me just say this, um, even as we prepare to do so, I I think one one of the action items coming out of this week and every week moving forward in this series Uh, would be this. One way that you could go, man, I have questions and I want them answered, so Jamie, coffee this week. And and, and that's fine. There's nothing inherently wrong with that. But I think one of the the things that 
God is kind in a series like this with respect to your questions is uh, we get to put this uh, on the on the table under the microscope a little bit. If the fruit of the Spirit is love, that means that there are those in our midst right now in this very room who emanate the love of God. And so I would say if you have questions about love as it pertains to God, neighbor, enemy, so forth and so on, as it pertains to God's love for you, I would encourage you to go to someone that's emanating the love of God very visibly because that's a clear indication that there's a walking by the Spirit. May they be able to theologically explain that in all of its precision? Maybe not. But I'll be honest with you, some of the people that can explain answers to your questions with the greatest theological precision don't emanate the love of God. It's very possible to have good doctrine and completely miss this boat altogether. And so I think you're going to walk away every week, whether you're a Christian or not. If you're not a Christian and you still have questions, you go, man, I want to press that allegiance thing. I want to press that Westminster Confession of Faith statement you made. How dare you say that I don't love uh, to the glory of God or uh, rooted in faith? I would say connect with someone that you see the love of God shining forth from. And if you are a Christian, you wrestle with that. Man, I'm victorious and then I'm defeated. I'm victorious and I'm defeated. Connect with someone that you see the love of God shine forth from. And then next week, do the same thing as it pertains to joy. Because let's be honest, uh, different people are are walking uh, in these virtues that make up the fruit of the Spirit uh, in, in different ways, qualitatively, I guess you would say. Because all of our root idols are very different, are they not? And, and so when you press on the flesh, when I'm walking in the flesh, the, the thing that you're going to see that's the struggle for me is going to be uh, things like gentleness and joy and so forth and so on. And others, you, you would go, man, when I'm walking according to the works of the flesh, my issues are self-control, love, and fill in the blank with whatever that is. We, we all, when we're walking by the Spirit, that looks a little differently, though we encompass all of these uh, virtues in some capacity. There are others who have been conformed more to the image of Jesus in certain ways that we haven't. And so uh, it might be a different connecting point for you week in and week out in terms of grabbing hold of the community of God that, that he's graciously surrounded you with and engaging these things. If you have questions, I think that's good. But my hope ultimately this morning is that you see just how deeply God loves you and that you're encouraged by the fact that you're filled with the love emanating God as you leave this place. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us, find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.